0: Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston This
1: is News Talk
0: Hello there and welcome to Taking Stock I'm Mandy Johnston I'm going to be keeping you company for the next hour and we've got some great guests lined up for you today coming up on today's show our dilemma over data centres continues with some warning now that Ireland risks a Brexit moment as companies look elsewhere for their bases. What the world wants. We'll be looking at a new global study on consumer behaviour. And finally, the cost of war as Israel raises billions in borrowing. To fund a war against Hamas, we'll ask how this war is being funded with Financial Times journalist Kate Duguid, who is based in New York. You can email me at takingstockatnewstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at N T. So today we're actually going to start with that issue of looking at the cost of war. Of course, the real cost of the Israeli war against Hamas are the thousands of people who've died and obviously those who are currently suffering unimaginable fear in the war. But we want to look today at who's funding the war because funding a war is a very expensive business. Now, the current conflict has led the Israeli government to turn to the bond markets to secure some finance. And I'm delighted now to be joined by Kate Dugood, who is US Capital Markets correspondent from the Financial Times. Times. Kate, you're welcome to News Talk today.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: Now, you've recently been writing about what Israel is doing to fund this war against Hamas. Um, What is the the Israeli government doing? They're out in the world borrowing. How much have they raised and how are they raising it?
2: So Israel has been funding its war against Hamas in a variety of different ways. Um, But my colleague Mary and I wrote a piece a few weeks ago about how Israel has raised more than six billion dollars since the start of the war in private placement bonds. Um, now, these private private placement bonds are deals that are privately negotiated. So the borrowers don't have a roadshow or an open syndication, but they're instead selling them to select investors. Mm. Um, this is one of the ways in which they're financing it. Um, and we found it particularly interesting because the reason that they're doing this privately Um, You know, it could be to raise funds for the war effort quickly from sort of known investors. It could be about expediency. Um, But it could also be about raising money without attracting unwanted attention, Mm. um, which may be a sign about how nervous some investors had grown about buying Israel's uh,
0: debt. Yeah, that, w- that would make sense. Obviously, um, it hasn't been done in the usual way, I'd imagine, through roadshows. Um, but so private individuals or private contacts. But who is actually investing in these bonds now? And what are the bonds that the Israeli government are offering?
2: Sure. So for the private placement, so this has included 5.1 billion across three new bond issues and um, six top-ups of existing dollar and euro-denominated bonds. Um, Dollar bond deals were arranged by Goldman Sachs and Bank of America. Um, So as for the investors, these people are not public. Um, We've been hearing about – and this wasn't actually in the piece, but we've been hearing um, that there are large institutional investors Mm. – Pension funds, life insurers, those type of, um, you know, those type of entities have been involved in these deals. Um, those are, that's on the private placement side, but we also know that there are these bonds called Israel bonds and they're kind of, um, they're, they're registered in the U.S., but they're affiliated with Israel's finance ministry, and they're more like a, um, like a, almost like a retail product. Mm. Um, and the company Israel Bonds has sold more than a billion of those bonds since the, um, since the start of the war. And um, the, the CEO of that company um, told us that most of that investment had come from the U.S. and Europe. Um, and was roughly evenly sp- split between sort of private investors and institutions. Um, but one of the things that we know and that we hadn't in, had, in had in this piece is that local governments in the United States, so particularly in states like New York, Texas and Florida, um, so in Texas and Florida, these are obviously red, red states, sort of more conservative states, that the sort of local governments in those places have been snapping up these Israel bonds. These are not the private placement deals, but these sort of more retail bonds. Um, and, and, and so that's been a big source of financing for them as well.
0: Yeah, I've seen a lot written about um, U.S. states investing over 300 million yeah. in Israeli bonds. Is that taxpayers money that's going into this?
2: Um, yeah, I mean it is state financing so yes yeah, so it's 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 not necessarily all coming from taxable income it could be coming from you know all of the different ways that sort of states get their money but um, but certainly yeah it's state it's it's public financing that is being that is being invested in this particular
0: way yes and would that be leading to any controversy over there is there much debate or even awareness about it
2: so I mean I think that the um, it has not led to a to a ton of controversy in the United States um, so far, um, the rules in Europe may be slightly different, um, though I don't know exactly which European investors have, have been investing in those. What I will say is that we know that, um, and this was true especially about the sort of private placement bonds, if we go back to those, is that like while there are some investors that have been very gung-ho about Israel, mm. um, we know that there are also like a lot of investors that are much more skeptical and nervous um, like a few people told us explicitly that, you know, the humanitarian toll of the war was way too high, but also that ESG risks are too high. And so if states have ESG mandates, they may be, you know, that may be a difficult thing to be in compliance with, um, Texas and Florida are less likely to have those. Um, but in, in places like California and New York, where ESG risks are taken, or, um, you know, sort of carry more weight, um, it's not to say that these problems have arisen, have arisen yet, but certainly when we were talking to investors, they raised the issue of ESG risks, Mm. right? Um, we also know like, listen, wars are very, very costly. Um, Moody's at the start of the war warned that they might downgrade Israel's credit rating because of this. Mm. Um, and the war is also likely to affect the country's growth, public debt. Um, and so all those things are risky for bond investors, period. Right. Um, And so these, these investments may be, um, questions may be raised about this, not just because of the, um, because of the war itself and the nature of the war. Um, But also because also about whether or not these are good investments, given the outlook for the country at the moment.
0: Yes. And what might happen to the country's GDP or growth rates as a result of the war? Ultimately, who can say? But when we're looking at people or countries who want to invest or companies who want to invest in these bonds, maybe secretly or privately, um, it is those ESG concerns now. But do you think, Kate, that... Um, It might also be an issue of reputation now but thinking of allies for the future, perhaps.
2: Yeah, you know, there wasn't, um, I think that, listen, these deals were done privately. Israel Mm. has negotiated deals privately before. They did so at the beginning of COVID because of, you know, because of the sort of expediency of this. But, uh, or because of the expediency of the process, like they don't have to go through sort of those public channels. Mm. Um, But um, certainly like, yeah, this is happening privately again. I'm sure that there is, there are some people who are very conscious of, I'm sure, I'm sure that there are companies that are conscious of um, the headlines that may come out um, about
0: this yeah. um, you know uh, and it's such a sensitive debate um, yeah. div- dividing everyone on, on, on all sides and it's very emotive and online it can cause an awful lot of, of discussion mm-hmm. so yeah there, there are all those considerations I want to go back to the bond um, mm-hmm. offering mm-hmm. if I can for a moment and just mm-hmm. compare maybe what the Israeli government are offering on these bonds how that compares to offerings from the treasury say or or what's out there in the world? Is it competitive? Is it pricey? Um, what 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 is the offering right. like?
2: So this is a great question, and this also speaks to investors' nerves. So Israel Israel is having to pay a lot to borrow this money, mm. um, and that suggests that investors are nervous. So we so the final pricing of the deals was not disclosed. Um, but we know that the two dollar bonds, the ones that were arranged by Goldman Sachs and Bank of America that were issued in November, um, Israel was paying 6.25 percent and 6.5 percent on those bonds, um, which is far, far higher than the yields on benchmark U.S. Treasury securities, which were, you know, sort of more in the range of 4.5, 4.7 percent. Um, and Israel, like, issued dollar bonds back in January with a coupon of 4.5 percent. Um and treasury yields were lower at the time, but the spread—the difference between um, treasuries and um, like treasury bonds and Israeli bonds—like um, that spread is how we measure how expensive something is. Because mm. like treasuries are the risk-free rate, right? Like you, that's sort of like a, um, and so anything. So the the wider that number gets. Um, the, the more expensive the bond is and so or the more expensive it is for the, the issuer to borrow. Mm. And we know that that gap has been widening really, really, really dramatically. Um, and so that really does suggest that investors are nervous about this, nervous about maybe the outlook of the country. Um, we also know that the, the CDS, so the cost to insure against the possibility of default, mm. uh, the credit defaults, uh, the five-year credit default swap in Israel, that has risen dramatically since the start of the war. So that's investors betting on an increased chance of a default, um, like of a financial default. Mm. And so it's come down a bit since the end of October, but it's still it's like nearly double what it was um, on October 7th.
0: And Katie, is there fundraising activities? Are they continuing now? Because as you said at the outset, funding a war is a very pricey affair. Um, are they still active in the markets now, still trying to yeah. to, to fundraise? Yeah.
2: As long as this war goes on, I think we can expect to see this kind of financing activity. Yeah. Yes.
0: And of course, what they're fundraising for is artillery, ammunition. It's a very um, costly affair. Um, I was reading someplace today that the biggest suppliers of all of that to Israel are America and Germany. Have you looked into this issue at all or find out what this finance is actually for?
2: We haven't looked at that so much. I mean, I think you can imagine what these things are being used to, to fund. Mm. Um but um, again, sort of like the details of these have been have been pretty private. But, um, you know, like I, I think that bonds are are being used, uh, bonds are used to finance all sorts of things, right? They're used to finance projects, they're used to finance government, um, they're used to finance specific, you know, maybe for artillery, uh, art- artillery or whatever it may be. But, you know, that the, these are probably being used across the economy. But we don't have, we didn't have specifics on what these private placement bonds have been used for. Okay. Um, though we do we do know that the costs for Israel are rising. Um, Absolutely.
0: Well, as Kate, that was a fascinating uh, tour about what is happening. As I said, the, the real costs are the casualties of the war. Uh, but thank you for taking us through all that investment piece and what the Israeli government are doing today. For now, we'll have to leave it there. That was Kate Dugod, who's U.S. Capital Markets correspondent from the Financial Times. Kate, thanks very much for being with us today. Thank you so much. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Coming up, we are entering a decade of deconstruction. That's according to a new global trends report by Accenture. And we'll be delving into it all after this short break. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now global consumer trends are constantly evolving and changes and businesses are always trying to do their best to keep up with them. So it's really essential to understand how these changes impact not just our daily lives, but how they impact business as well. Accenture have done some new research about trends that are going to happen in 2024 and what what we can expect from them. So back on Taking Stock to take us through all of the latest findings is Mark Curtis, who's Global Head of Innovation and Thought Leadership and Sustainability Lead at Accenture. Song, Mark, you're very welcome back to Taking Stock.
1: Hi there, nice to be here again.
0: I you might just remind us, Mark, about the research itself. It's quite comprehensive and it's been going a couple of years. Uh, so take us through what, what the intent of the research actually is.
1: Yeah, we've actually been doing it for about 17 years now. And the intention of the research is to look at what are the things happening at the intersection between humans and technology and business which is so important to the way we live our lives these days and the way in which businesses make money what are the things which are changing which are going to go on changing that we need to think about when we're thinking about that relationship and when businesses are going to build and launch new products and services or redesign old ones so that's the purpose of trends is to think about all of those things yeah and we do talking to thousands of people all over the world, both consumers and designers, and we get a sense from what they're thinking, the patterns that are out there.
0: Yeah, and you do um, identify five global macro uh, trends, which we'll get into in a moment. But one of the things I found interesting about this year's um, analysis was that mindsets have changed. Can you take us through what you found there?
1: Yeah, well, I think COVID continues to throw a very long shadow and all those months and years of lockdown really, I think, changed the way people think about things. Many people. Then I think, on top of that, um, the recession that nobody seems to be calling a recession, but it's undoubtedly one. That I think is shifting the way people think about things dramatically, actually. Um, and you've got a, you know, you've got a whole bunch of people, particularly in the younger age groups, growing up, who simply can't see the same things happening in life that they heard happen to their parents. Um, around, for example, things like home ownership um, or, uh, you know, accumulating wealth, which are, you know, to some extent, same, same thing. Mm. And I think that's making people really, really think very, very differently. There's also stuff happening in the zeitgeist, to think, where things, people are simply what we call rethinking thinking, where people are challenging a lot of the basic assumptions we've made about life and how we live it, about what the key milestones of life should be, about what humans should do. And I think all of that is, uh, is really causing the shift in mindsets that's going on.
0: Yeah. And, and another thing I found interesting was the, the periods that people are planning for now. You say another 48 percent of people make plans for their lives less than 12 months ahead. So quite short term thinking now coming into um, a general trend of, of of how people are planning, really.
1: Yes, actually. What we're seeing, what we think we're detecting, uh, this is going to sound very simplistic, but is a broad divergence between those people who are driven very much by the need to be resilient for the future mm. um, and those who are going, actually, I, I can't, I'm not able, I'm not going to want to think more than one to three years ahead, and I'm not going to, and I'm going to think more about how I can be a better me right now. And and I think, well, we will definitely be tracking The developments of that over the next, um, year, over the next few years to come. But that's the broad split that we're beginning to see.
0: Mm. Yeah, that would make sense if you think of of what you've just said there about we've gone through a pandemic. We've also gone through not one war on the the margins of Europe now, war in the Middle East as well. You know, this sense of omni-crisis. Maybe there's a feeling that people don't want to think too long term because they've got to factor all that in. So let's turn back to uh, some of the findings in the research about the global macro trends, say. One of the things that you you say is that we're entering a decade of deconstruction. What does that mean?
1: Well, this actually relates very strongly to what you just asked about. What we're seeing is that people are deconstructing the way they live their lives and trying to think through different and new ways of living their lives that we've not seen before. And we're seeing that actually all over the world. And there's probably three reasons why that's happening. The first is... Um, societal systems health services for example um, water services uh, power outages are breaking down in many many countries all over the world and increasingly people are much less certain that societal safety nets are going to be there for them and i know from what i've read we certainly see that in ireland as much as we do in the Mm. uk um the second thing and then alongside that in terms of systems you've got people now beginning to really worry about climate change and what it's going to mean for the future as they begin to see dramatic weather events happen in their own lives. For example, holidaymakers being flown back from Greece because of wildfires all over Corfu, for example.
0: Mm.
1: Second thing you're seeing is what I just mentioned, which is this rethinking thinking. People are actually questioning long-held assumptions about history and values and gender, for example. Lots of stuff like that. A lot of the output from that is a lot of noise and fury about culture wars. But actually, beneath that noise and fury, it's deeply important that we're seeing many people really question established values. And then the third thing we're seeing is a breaking through of some long developed demographic patterns, in particular aging and in particular lack of childbirth which are really, again, happening pretty much all over the world. Um, even in more advanced societies in Africa, childbirth is beginning to go into decline, or you can see the preconditions for it mm. happening. And, and so people are very aware of these demographic changes, and it's making them ask you know, hard questions about, Do I should I go to university? When am I going to get a house? Should I really be trying to do that? What does marriage look like? What indeed does work or career look like? And all of those things you could, we should, define as milestones. They've been held in many societies for a long time. That's what a life well-lived looks like. But people are really questioning that. Yeah, yeah,
0: fairly complex issues, but all building, I suppose, a societal shift there and, and, and that questioning issue around it all. So um, that's one of the global uh, macro trends that you're, you're, you're predicting and calling out. Take us swiftly, if you can, through the other four. We'll pick out one or two to go through in detail.
1: Sure. So um, we call there's one we call Where's the Love? And what we're asking about there is how come customer obsession, which has been king for years in all customer-facing organizations, how come we're seeing that beginning to disappear? And we're seeing a real crisis, actually. Beginning to disappear is not a good enough phrase. We're seeing a crisis in the last couple of years with things like shrinkflation, which is less product for the same amount of money, or Actually, sometimes more money or skimflation, which is less service, hotels or restaurants or travel for the same amount of money that you're paying. We're even seeing in London surge pricing in pubs uh, and restaurants as people, um, as as businesses, are decided that they can charge more when they're busy. A lot of these things, and many more things as well that I could name, are pushing are really represent are really um, examples of the ways in which businesses have lost their focus on customer experience over the last couple of years and have begun to focus on efficiency, obviously given the economic conditions so that they can continue to keep their margins and their volumes high, and that comes around to survival. Mm. But the difficulty Mm. for them is that by forgetting the customer and the centrality of the customer, something which we've been working on for 30 years ever since we really began to go digital and focus on customer experiences through screens, if we de-invest in those things, we potentially lose the long-term impact or loyalty, I should say, that brands have with their customers. Mm. And so businesses are facing these difficult questions. Do they go down the route of efficiency and, and forego customer experience? Or do they continue to invest in customer experience in order to ensure ensure those long-term brand relationships?
0: Mark, that's something I'm hearing time and time again from a number of different industries. Um if the customer is no longer king, um, and that's certainly the case in a broad area of 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 of, of industries, as I as I've said, um, why is this happening? Like most people quickly point to technology and say, oh, you know, we're just taking the human out of the customer experience. But it has to be um bigger than that. Is it because there's an endless supply of consumer now and that just we as consumers are voracious in our appetite for product? But why is the customer less important? Surely to God, the bottom line at the end of the day is all about the customer.
1: I don't think it's I I don't think it's technology at all. Um, I'm perfectly happy to blame technology for things, but in this case I don't think it's tech. In fact it was tech about 30 years ago, mm. really got everyone focused on customer. You didn't hear people talk about that 40, 50 years ago. It wasn't a thing. The customer experience became a thing because we experienced so much of our world through increasingly small screens. Mm. Um, and, and that got us all very focused on it. I think it's literally something that's happened in the last two years as the bounce back from COVID then collapsed. Mm. And businesses began to face and also particularly with the war in the Ukraine and other global events on the supply side, businesses began to you know, businesses and consumers equally began to face a much tougher economic era. So I think businesses have said, actually we're just going to focus on that efficiency side. And I think they're losing sight of the customer. Mm. I think that's that's going on
0: here I think you're absolutely right I think the technology argument is quite spurious and it actually comes back to the culture in a company um, or a business whatever that that might be Mark we're swiftly running out of time but one thing I did want to talk to you about uh, as part of this research was the human request limit reached and this is all about people's relationship with technology and that being at a critical juncture so do you want to just take us through some of the findings and what you what you saw here
1: yeah, so um, what we're seeing here is that basically um, there's a, there's a um, notification you get when you apply for Taylor Swift tickets along with millions of other people in the same minute and you can't get them because the, the servers can't deal with the number of requests they're getting. We're turning that on its head and saying we suspect that humans are getting to a similar place where the, rec- the demands that technology are placing on mankind are ones we're now struggling to accommodate with the 16 hours awake that we've got um, every day. And, and although technology has delivered heaps of advantages, we've just talked about some of them, we're also seeing the demands it places on people, digital literacy, attention and time, mental health. And the changes that we're seeing right now feel way too fast, and the future, particularly with artificial intelligence, seems extremely daunting. Mm-hmm. When people are asking questions, and I hear this all the time, around what should my children study at school so that they will have a job in 20 years' time, I technology has not really caused us to ask quite those questions in quite that way over the last 30, 40 years. And that, that becomes quite existential and very, very... Uh, very very central to people's lives and on top of that you've got the intense hype cycles making people feel like passengers and all the stuff we've had with sam altman and OpenAI just over the last couple of weeks the drama being played out in a very public place the fact that we now know that the argument appears to have been we think we know appears to have been over are we going too fast and too far or should we slow down and that that public debate being played out is is like something we've not quite seen before so i'm not arguing here that ai is a bad thing generative ai in particular what we are saying is that that plus some of the hype cycles around web 3 and the metaverse that have come in the last couple of years are really causing people to pause and say i'm not so sure that i should be engaging with technology as much as I am. In fact, what we're hearing people say is, maybe we should be defining society and then building the technology we want before we build the technology and let it define society, which appears to be what a lot of people think has been happening.
0: Yeah, very interesting. That was Mark Curtis, Global Head of Innovation and Thought Leadership and Sustainability Lead at Accenture. Thank you very much, Mark, for joining us again. Thank you. You're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk. Up next, the great data center dilemma. What are they, and are they sucking up our energy? You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. Now, it's only a matter of time until the energy supply constraint is fixed through investment, but a significant question remains is it strategic for Ireland to be home to so many data centres? So writes John Collins, technology writer with the currency, in his article this week, and he joins me on the line now. John, you're very welcome to Taking Stock.
3: Thanks, Mandy. Nice to be here.
0: Now, John, this is a debate that has been rumbling for quite some time. uh, The issue of data centres, whether they're good or bad for our economy and whether they're sucking up all of our energy or not. But can we start off with a basic explanation of what exactly a data centre is?
3: Data centre is just designed to be somewhere that, you know, uh, 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 thousands of servers, uh, you know, computers, which basically run the internet you know when people talk about the cloud uh you know where, where all all these services we use in our phones and our computers these days live they live they live in data centers and um you know by concentrating them in these these centers the idea is that you obviously get more efficiencies you know you can have high speed links to the internet you know uh, all, all sorts of uh, positives by putting them in one place but uh they're pretty power hungry which is why we've kind of run into the, the situation we're in now where they're they're pretty it's it's just a hot topic debate, right? Because uh, once you know, air grid and people start talking, as they have done over the last couple of winters, about potential power cuts, uh, people start pointing the finger at uh, the, the people who are using most energy. And uh, data centres definitely fall into that category.
0: Yeah, and exactly how much energy are they using um, from the grid in Ireland at the moment?
3: So the latest figures from the CSO put it at 18% of all our electricity. Uh, to put that in context, that is the same as the amount of metered electricity that's been used by urban dwellings, uh, you know, and uh, where, whereas urban dwellings has actually gone down over the last few years and so have, so have rural dwellings, obviously people, you know, individuals are improving their energy consumption and, you know, obviously with, with prices going up, they're probably just using less and watching how, how much they're using. Data centres have mass- massively exploded. They were It was 5% as, as recently as 20, 2015, now it's it's 18% last year, so... Yes, they're, they're huge. They are a huge user uh, of energy. And I suppose the question I, I, I wanted to ask my article was, you know, well, sh- should we, you know, is it strategic to have them? Because I think at some level, the debate has got very emotive and very simplistic. And it's kind of like, well, you know, they don't employ a huge amount of people directly. So, you know, do we really want to ha- have them here sucking all our, our energy at a time when we don't have much spare capacity?
0: Yeah, and you do ask many fundamental questions in that article. Um, And one of them is is about uh, whether or not their contribution exceeds the, I suppose, drain on our um, energy system and our grid and, and also, I suppose, what they're trying to do to counteract that themselves. But maybe just let's take a wider view of this because Ireland has a long history with technology companies going right back to IBM and Dell and so this has kind of progressed over years but what factors contribute to making Ireland such an attractive location for multinational companies who want to actually put their data centres here?
3: Yeah, well, um, I suppose, and you know, this has been true since even the the nineteen nineties, or late nineteen nineties, when they started to build them here. Uh, you know, one of the, they're the one of the few people who come here for our weather, uh, you know, <laughs> Irish weather. It's uh, never gets too cold, never gets too hot. Uh, so you know, there's not that that big sort of like shit. You know, so that you know, obviously some of these. Are located in places like Iceland and and, and Sweden where they have access to uh, cheap hydropower, but then they have the issue that's incredibly cold in the in the winter, and you're probably even slightly warmer here than it is in summer sometimes. Ireland has that small range of temperatures, which makes it economical to to, to run them here. Then there's all the stuff that like obviously makes us attractive just generally for tech, which is you know English speaking workforce that's experienced in tech. We're in the eurozone and uh we're also part of the eu uh, uh, uh you know so like we have it, it, it's a lot of the stuff that, that makes us generally attractive hmm. um and i suppose the, the question then is like is it a fair, is it a fair transaction? Like, what does Ireland get in, in return? I think is probably the the question a lot of people are
0: asking. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose the low corporation tax is not an insignificant draw to them either. And the fact that plenty of their mother ships are here, the likes of Google and Meta, and um, all of them with their 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 company HQs here. We don't really mind the mothership that much but we don't really like the engine um, being here. So, so what, do, yeah. what do they actually bring to the party themselves? What do they contribute to Ireland?
3: Yeah, so I suppose the, the way the, the people in the industry position it and I thought this was quite an interesting one, is that like, yeah, there's not a lot of direct jobs but I think what it does is it, it anchors that other investment that does create a lot of jobs because like, Effectively, the, the 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 jobs that are here in on they're all access like people. They're all accessing those data centers. They're all like using the data that's in those the data centers um, to, 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 for their jobs. And it's just it's, it's infrastructure that's that's hard to move. So I think it certainly shores that up. But I think actually it's, it's probably more interesting is like what's going to happen in the next five to ten years because like as we see the rise of things like AI, like data is itself going to become much more valuable. And I think if that fits in our jurisdiction, I think there's huge, huge opportunities here. And um, I think just like being able to develop new new functions and and, and new jobs that like re- rely on data. Now, yes, you can access that data anywhere, but I think just having that infrastructure here uh, and, and sort of like showing that Ireland is, um, is is very open to that that kind of innovation is is, is potentially huge. You know, and I think that's. Yeah, because obviously you can't just rely with, with multinational investments, costing, you kind of have to reinvest yourself. Like what Ireland is not offering something to multinationals now as it was in, 19, in the 1990s. Um, so I think that's kind of the, the, the feeling in the industry. Um, and I think that the, the argument about direct jobs as well, a lot of people would say, look, it's, it's similar to roads. You know, you build infrastructure like roads to benefit everyone, but you don't like to sort of say, well, who's going to actually, you know, get jobs directly out of the roads? It, it, it's what it facilitates, and and, and equally, you know, people would, people in the industry would argue that it's not just the data centres that are, that benefit. If we, we 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 have them here, or if we improve our like energy infrastructure, our telecoms infrastructure to to, to, to accommodate them, that it, it benefits every, the whole economy and, and potentially even the whole of society.
0: Yeah, and I saw that referenced in your article about the roads. Nobody ever says that a road doesn't have that many people, you know, working on it over a period of time or how much it's costing or think the contribution that's making. And I had never kind of made that um, analogy or or comparison, but it is a a very good way of of putting it. Now, I was speaking to some people in the industry just doing a little bit of research on this, and they say that there is a de facto moratorium on building new data centres in Dublin in place at the moment then the government are saying that's not actually what's happening so w- what's your <laughs> assessment of um, I
3: might use that word moratorium Mandy I get in trouble with the uh, with air grids and uh, the regulator and various people that don't like that word listen uh, what they're saying is that in areas of constrained supply that you have to meet certain conditions if you want to build a data centre and basically the condition is you, you, you have to have your own power. Um, so, so can I just stop, b-
0: can I stop yeah. you there for a second then so that means that if someone's coming into Ireland trying to build a new data centre, that they have to be self-sufficient, not just sustainable, but self-sufficient. And that means yeah. that they're being told that they cannot depend on the grid as well, presumably. How does that fit with IDA, Enterprise Ireland, everyone going out into the world trying to get us new business?
3: Well, I think certainly uh, IDA are, are not not happy about it. I mean, I think it's been pretty widely reported. They, they, they said that they felt the data centre industry was being unfairly scapegoated. Um but, like, what, what it means in reality is that, and I think there are somewhere uh, 10 to 12 data centres in development at the moment who will basically have a gas, uh, a, a connection to gas, and they will be able to, like, power the data centre off natural gas, um, which gets around the issue of of not having been able to connect to the grid, but like the the flip side of that is it's not helping us with our carbon uh, neutral goals. We've got these these big new data centers uh, who are, who are burning gas. Hmm. So uh, like the long- term solution here is we've got to be creative um, about well not just creative, but we've got to make some of the investments in the grid in the in the Dublin area, which will allow renewables to to come on stream. Uh, but also starting to be just creative about, you know, the, 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 how the data centres themselves can be part of the the, the solution, and that, that that's something I heard from for everyone I talked to in this They they definitely feel like they need to be, they just want to be told how they how they can contribute, uh, or like what they could do, what they need to do to to sort of be able to, to develop. Listen, they're not charities, obviously, not, but they they do. I think they they feel there hasn't been enough sort of communication, or you know the. That people like Airbridge never sort of raised these concerns, you know, 10 years ago when they when they showed the plans for what they wanted to build that potentially there was going to be uh, supply constraints down the line.
0: Mm. If you're just tuning in, I'm speaking to John Collins, who's technology writer with The Currency, and we're talking about the dilemma of data centres and what's happening there at the moment. Um, you mentioned early on, John, that this has become quite an emotive issue, uh, and it is really, and I think particularly outside of Dublin where they're trying to locate in maybe rural areas. Why do you think it has um, developed in this way that we as a nation no longer see this as as a plus and it's very much considered a, a minus?
3: Well, I think it, it it really comes down to the the impact on the grid uh, and the impact on el- electricity supply. And like once you start talking about, you know, uh, potential, you know, blackouts, uh, it, it, it's, of course, it's going to get really, really, really emotive. I think obviously the other thing is, you know, these centers are like, you know, they are pretty, um, they don't, they don't have big numbers of people employed directly. They're kind of like these huge sort of squat, ugly buildings, that, like, you know, they're very secretive. They don't have signage. You know, it's, it's, it's very easy to sort of scapegoat them as sort of like, uh, you know, something, something we don't need, but I think that is to to fail to see like what they do underpin and what, what they do support in the rest of the, the, the economy. Um, there's probably a question about do we disproportionately have so, so many of them here, but isn't that surely a, a good thing? Is it you know in terms of like the the uh, foreign direct investment that's that's coming into this country that we're actually you know sort of potentially winning these investments against you know because London, Frankfurt, all these places, yeah, you know, Amsterdam and Paris, they're, they're all trying to get these investments, um, but but right now we're we're sort of we have things on on hold at best, if, if not sort of tell them to kind of come back four or five years
0: when we have out the electricity supply. Mm. Ironically, you know, um, if they are now talking about data centres being standalone or self-sustaining and self-sufficient, they are, as you said earlier, kind of generating their own solutions with these gas generators. I know others are exploring biomethane and hydrogen, um, but they could actually make a contribution to the grid ironically if they do start actually investing correctly in energy they could actually become uh, contributors to the grid as opposed to people who are draining it
3: yeah absolutely i mean there's an interesting piece in that you know obviously data centers have to make sure because they're providing services that need to be available 24 7 there's huge amounts of uh batteries that, that, that that they have that they most most of them would use that potentially could could actually help a lot with the grid in terms of like storing energy that you know when renewables can 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 uh, can, can generate power when the wind is going they can take in power store it, and then you know potentially we could say to them listen, listen we, we want to be able to take up to 50 percent of your battery capacity as and when needed uh, and make that a a con- you know a, a part of the planning commission mm. um and certainly i know you know google for instance has a policy that not only, because there's some argument about you know a lot, a lot of them will say we will we'll we they're effectively buying renewables that will then be generated anyway. So they're actually sort of reducing the supply of renewables. Google, for instance, has a policy that like where they build new data centers, they want to actually build net new renewables as well. Mm. Um, so it's not just a case of of, of buying up existing. So yeah, I mean, I think there is, you know, as I say, they're not charities; uh, they are businesses, but they are they are quite willing to invest in, in renewable energy, and they are very conscious of the of the carbon footprint of these facilities. And I think there's been massive improvements in terms of the the, the actual um, efficiency of the, of these centres uh, compared to you know, five, ten years ago.
0: Look, and we have to be, you know, uh, realistic as well. This is not just an issue facing the industry here in Ireland. It's something that they're challenged with globally. So ESG targets are are hyper in their mind as well as ours and our concerns about the grid. But just let's go back to maybe basics. I asked you at the beginning, what is a data centre? And we kind of talked about what they look like and who they employ. But of course, the necessity of data centre is about our lives, our digital connectivity in everyday life. I don't see that... um, dissipating or reducing anytime soon or certainly there's no big campaign out there to try and get us to use less energy so where do you see this going where do you see the the, the CRU going with it air grid going with it, data centred, what's your prediction for the next 6 to 12 months and those, well let's not call it a moratorium but those stalled projects <laughs>
3: Yeah, listen, I, I think in a, over six to 12-month uh, time frame, I don't see a huge amount changing. I mean, what's going to happen in the next six to 12 months is, uh, you know, Airgrid has its its project in Dublin uh, to, to massively invest. It's putting over a billion in the grid in Dublin. Um, but, I mean, that's kind of going to be in construction phase rather than sort of seeing the benefits of that in the next six to 12 months. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously there is a grid connection being being built to to France as well, which will come come online in a couple of years. Uh, I think that that will help massively and, and allow us not just avail of the the French and their their nuclear power, but actually to to balance the grid more and, and bring more renewables on. So I think I think it's 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 that bottleneck, particularly in in, in Dublin, once that's cleared, um, and and more renewables can co- come on, and more not just renewables, but just um, yeah you know, offshore offshore wind. I think will be huge. Like new, new sources of renewable power, I think that will, will make a huge difference uh, and and help you unlock this. But I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of people who complain about data centers and say they don't want them, you know, they're still watching a Netflix series, they're still you know using social media, they're doing all the things that, that actually these centers power. So it's kind of, you know, there definitely is a, an element of of an here. Uh, I think in, in the debate.
0: Yeah, well, John, we saw during the week that some people were referencing we could do ourselves a lot of harm and risk a Brexit type moment when it comes to data centres. But who knows? We'll watch this space with interest. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That was John Collins, technology writer for The Currency. John, thank you very much. Thanks, Robbie. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Just a reminder that while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. My thanks, as always, to all of today's guests for their time and very valuable insights. I want to thank also the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with John Byrne on research and Hugo Silva-Scott on sound. If you've got any comments about today's items, you can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. Anton Savage is up next with all of your Sunday newspapers and lots, lots more. But for now, from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.